11 today. Uh, I'm going to follow up on a few thoughts that came into the sermon that I gave about the Feast of Dedication and the renewal that is involved and a little bit of something I touched on. So I'm going to make a series of sermons out of this. But here in Hebrews, well, let's begin at the end of uh, chapter 10. Uh, Verse 35, Cast not away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. When we first come to understand God's truth, it's exciting. Uh, We are seeking, yearning to learn, to grow, to understand, uh, to grasp the ins and outs of God's way as opposed to the way we've been taught in other churches or by society or by parents or whatever. And we really stuck our nose in the Bible and wanted to find out what God really had to say. And in that, we had great enthusiasm and confidence because this was something new, it was exciting, it was it was a revelation, if you will. I remember, I don't know how many of you remember Howard Clark. Uh, he was a character. Uh, he got around to some feast sites to speak, but he was, he was around the college and worked with his students quite a bit. He had quite a few physical difficulties and was always in pain, but he always kind of would come around the students, and we, we liked Howard Clark. He, he was full of humor and, and everything. Uh, but he worked with me and with John Halford a bit when we were seniors. Uh, he had a Bible study out in Glendale on, a, I think, a weekly basis. And so we were senior students, and uh, he'd send one of us out there for a Bible study. And, of course, we didn't know up from down much. And uh, so I asked him one time, well, what should I tell these people? What should I talk about? What would help them? He was really, really helpful. He says, anything you say will be a revelation. Well, that really gave me a lot to go on. <laughs> that thought just occurred to me. But everything was a revelation when it was new to us. We were learning so much so fast, whether it was many, many years ago or even more recently, uh, that we're learning these things even. So he says... Don't cast away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. We need confidence that we're going to get the job done, that we're going to be in the kingdom of God. Hope against hope is kind of a negative approach. I wish, I want, but we need to have the glass full mentality or half full, not half empty, to use that, that we're going to get this done. And that has to be through faith in God. Now, why do we doubt? We often doubt because we know ourselves. And we understand that if becoming part of the kingdom of God depends on us, chances are we're not going to make it. There are quite a few scriptures that say God works his salvation in us and through us. He brings us to salvation, not we. 
That's why Paul had to explain. It's, it's not by works. You, you can't work your way in. Now, we are to have good works. We're to do good things. We're to serve one another. But just because you do good deeds doesn't mean you'll be in the kingdom of God. Because there are sins involved. And we all sin, and without the forgiveness of Christ's blood, we couldn't make it anyway. So, number one, we have his blood going for us. And number two, he's alive and is coming to dwell in men. I made a big point of that when we just recently went through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He comes and dwells in us and lives his life over again in us. Now, we impede him a lot of times by going our way or being selfish or prideful or vain or egotistic or whatever in the various works of the flesh get in our way. But he is working through his spirit and power to bring us to salvation. That's his goal and his purpose is for us to make it. It is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. He wants to. So he said, don't cast away your confidence. Be confident that Christ can do this. And he goes on to explain what he means here. For you have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. So he says, it doesn't come immediately. We have to live this life out, however long that may be, uh, until... The promise comes. So don't give up and think, well, you know, I've done good and I'm still not a spirit being. I'm not in God's kingdom. No, you're still human. And you may have to live X number of years yet and be patient. Well, I think that this was good advice considering what we have been through in the church of God over the last decades. Uh, because we had great hope that the kingdom of God would come soon and Christ would be standing on the earth by 1975. And that's over 40 years ago. Uh, and here we are. So why did Paul say you have need of patience? It was true then, it's true today. Uh, God isn't dead. He hasn't died in the last 40 years. He's still there. Uh, some of us have died, but some of us are still here. The ones that have died don't need patience anymore. <laughs> they don't need nothing, just wait. And they don't even know they're having to wait. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now, of course, that was written 2,000 years ago. <laughs> so it would seem that it's been a tarry. But that was at the beginning of the fourth uh, millennium of man's experience, and now we're at the end of the sixth. So we know that uh, with a six and seven thousand year plan, the part that winds up man's uh, travails is almost over at the end of six thousand years, a, a day as a year, or a day as a thousand years, excuse me. And it won't tarry. It's, it's very close now. But, verse 38, now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Now, you and I want God to have pleasure in us. 
we look at ourselves and say, what pleasure could I be to God? And yet, if we will be obedient and humble and teachable and meek, uh, He can't help but love us because He does love us. Even in our sin, He loves us. He doesn't love our sin, but just like your children, you, you love them when they're acting up. But you're not pleased with them at that point. You like it better when they're obedient and sweet and loving and kind and ready to give you a hug and a kiss than you do when they're stomping their feet and kicking the wall, or you. Uh, You don't have much pleasure in them at that point. So, God loves us at all times. But we want Him to have pleasure in us, for us to be a joy to Him. And that needs to be one of our goals. One of the fruits of the Spirit of God is joy. And we should strive to become a joy to God. Back in, toward the end of Isaiah, he talks about how you've made me live with your sins. Oh, I'm tired of it. <laughs> you know, I, that's not the exact quote, but that's, that was the emotion he was expressing. How much better if he could take pleasure in us and then be pleased to give us salvation. So we have an opportunity not to draw back, not to doubt, not to fear, but to believe that he can get us there. We are not of them who draw back to perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. You have to believe it. Believe in it. You know, any goal you have as a human being that you really believe in, you're going to work harder at, you're going to accomplish more, you will think about it, you'll put your entire self into it to a greater degree than something you really don't believe in. Let's say you're starting a business, and you think, oh, I don't know whether this will work or not. Uh, I probably won't, but maybe it's worth a try. And so you try. But now if you're really excited and you say, I know this is going to work. I know it's going to happen. Then you'll throw yourself into it. You'll work at it. You'll think about it. You'll make it happen. When you ask somebody to do something, you say, well, I'll try to get that done. I don't have too much confidence that that will happen. If I hear them say, I will do that, then I think there's a pretty good chance it's going to happen. But when they say, well, I'll try, you might as well write it off. Now, once in a while, they will try, and they might get it done, or they might sort of get it done. But is it on time, and is it right? You know? We're not to those that draw back, but to them that believe. So then he begins this chapter on faith, where he says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We have never seen a spirit being. We've never seen God. We've never seen his throne in heaven. We've read descriptions of some of those things, sketchy ones at that, but we've not seen And yet here we are. We believe something, or we wouldn't be here today. 
So we believe in something that we've not seen evidence of other than the proofs of God that God offers us in Romans 1, really. He says, you see me through the things I've made. And I've said it before, but that's how I often keep my perspective. As I look around at the things God has made, and they're incredible. I mean, we've polluted this earth horribly with our chemtrails and our chemicals and our overfishing and wrong kinds of fishing and uh, everything we've done to pollute this earth. And God even says in the book of Revelation, Woe to them that pollute the earth. And we've, we have made it an awful place in some respects where the air you breathe and the food you eat uh, causes cancer and disease and diabetes and heart trouble and a myriad of other problems that you never hardly even heard of 50 or 60 or 80 years ago. But the more we've gone this direction, the worse it's gotten. We need to get the best foods we can find and afford and eat those and stay away from the junk as much as we can. But that isn't where I want to go with this. The point is, despite everything man has done to destroy this earth, when you drive around through this country and others, it's still gorgeous. The mountains, the trees, even the deserts, the rivers, the lakes, the deer, the birds, the trees, on and on. It's just such a wonderful place that God has made. We sat out last night and looked at that big full moon. Incredible. And tonight's a super moon. It's supposed to be closer and bigger tonight. And when it comes over this red hill over here tonight, it's going to be spectacular. So when I begin to have lose my focus or perspective, I try to get among the things God made or around the things he made away from what man has done and look at what God has done. And when I look at those things that I've just described, I say, I want to be around someone that did that. I'd like to be closely associated with whoever designed and created and made these things that are so exciting and enjoyable and pleasant and restful and peaceful to look at that he has made. So then I say, there had to be a God. This didn't crawl out of the ocean. Where did the ocean come from? <laughs> you know, to crawl out of and on and on back about evolution. No, there's a God who designed and made us even as David said in the Psalms, my body is fearfully and wonderfully made. I mean, this pile of dirt that's been rearranged and fixed and had breath breathed into it, and it can eat and drink and sleep and get up and reproduce, and it just it's incredible the way the systems in our bodies work together to make us be able to get up and move around and to think and to... Why did my hand go up there when I said think? Because there's a little brain in there somewhere. And it communicated to my hand that I was going to say something about thinking, so it went up here. Why didn't it go to my little toe? Well, there's even less brains down there. So it didn't go there. It went here. It's just, your body is incredible. 
You don't have to look really any further than that. So, God has told us these things, and he's told us about salvation. And he's made the creation around us, not just this world, but the panoply of stars and the heavenly bodies above, which are incredible when you get to looking at them. So, faith has to do with a God that we have not seen, but we've seen evidence of what he can do. And we need to believe that. And you and I do believe that. But a lot of people on this earth really don't believe that. So he says, this kind of belief, this kind of trust, is something you need, for by it the elders obtained a good report. By elders, he means all those from Adam on down who did obtain a good report from God, had that belief, that understanding, that faith that God existed, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently serve and obey him. They believed that. They expected a reward for following God, because he is a rewarder. He likes to reward. He likes to give. And then he says, really, what I just explained. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, Christ, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. It was bara, nothing. And out of nothing came something. But it had to have been created by a superior being. Then he goes through a list of those elders, of those people who did things and followed God because they had that kind of belief and trust based on what they saw around them. And what did they see around them? Same things you and I see. Mountains, the rivers, the lakes, the trees, the sun, the moon, and the stars. They were there then. What inspired David to write so many of the Psalms? Being out on the mountain with the sheep. He didn't have anything to do but talk to God and practice with his slingshot. You know, the sheep are grazing and they're eating and they're milling about. And What's David going to do? <laughs> Nobody there but him and the sheep. So he thought about a lot of these things and he appreciated the creation right up here on Cedar Mountain where he ran the sheep. I believe that. Let's go with that thought in mind to Isaiah 51. This is the one I touched on and didn't turn to yesterday, but I was planning a thought to be followed up today. Now here he's, in this whole context, he's talking about the end time work starting with chapter 40. Uh, he's talking about Hezekiah, whom Herbert Armstrong was a type of, up through chapter 39. Uh, and then he switches to uh, the next phase, the latter temple in Isaiah 40. So that is the context on through the time of gathering and so on that we mentioned in chapter 54 and 55 yesterday. So it is in that light, 
And in that time context of the two witnesses and of the end time remnant that will build the temple, that he says this. Chapter 51 of Isaiah. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. Now that would be us, would it not? I don't know how righteous God judges us, but we certainly follow after righteousness. That is our goal, it's our purpose, it's our focus, is to become righteous. You that seek the eternal. Then he's going to give us some advice. To those who are seeking righteousness and who are seeking God, here's something you need to do. Look to the rock once you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit once you are digged. Where did you come from? <laughs> Wherever you were, whatever you were dug out of, whatever rock you came from. Look to Abraham, your father. So he uses a pit and a rock uh, as an analogy, but he's referring really to our the elders that Paul is mentioning there in Hebrews 11. And he mentions most notably uh, Abraham and Sarah here. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah that bore you. For I called him alone and blessed him, and increased him. So he said, I called Abraham, Abraham responded is implied here, and I was able to bless him, I was able to increase him. So we need to look at Abraham, because he came to the point that he pleased God. He was a pleasure to God. He was someone that God couldn't help but bless and increase. For the eternal shall comfort Zion, this area and the people who come to Zion, and those who form the spiritual Zion, the church. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden, and her desert like the garden of the eternal. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody." So speaking of the end-time church, the latter temple, God is going to give it Edenic conditions. Climate change, no more thorns, no more thistles, no more briars, rain in due season, perfect temperature, abundant food, milk and honey, or milk and wine without uh, money, chapter 55 says. All those things are coming before Christ even returns. I'll show you that in the context in a minute. We've seen it a hundred places, but here it is again. So he tells us to look to Abraham and to Sarah. Isn't that what Paul is telling us there in Hebrews 11? It isn't that really what he even says there in Malachi 4, that we are to uh, turn to our fathers, and I explained that, our Father in heaven and our Father's Uh, physically, our forefathers. And here, it's confirmed. God says, if you're seeking righteousness, you're seeking me, look to Abraham and Sarah. There's a good starting point for you. Uh, Because they pleased me, and I blessed them. And he became the father of the faithful. And you want to be faithful? Well, we talk about our father in heaven and his son a lot in Scripture and in sermons here. But maybe we need to talk more also, not more than 
God, but more than we do, about some of the examples from the past, even as Paul pointed out, and then named a whole bunch of them. Let's go on just a little bit here. Verse 4, Hearken to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. So he says, I'm giving you important information here. Listen up. Don't, don't just let this go through your head and disappear. For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. Christ told us in the Sermon on the Mount that we are to become a light to the world. And here he's saying that long before Christ said it, but it basically is a quote from right here. My righteousness is near. Now, the kingdom of God is not set up then when he says this. It's near. This is the end of the age. He has to have something to show the world that obeying him works. And that you will obey God so that he can confer these blessings on us. He says, I blessed and increased Abraham, and I want to bless and increase you too. So listen up, respond. My salvation has gone forth, and my arm shall judge the people. Still future. The coasts shall wait upon me, and on my arm shall they trust. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. Look around at the earth you see, because it isn't going to exist in this condition much longer. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and therein shall die in like manner, but my salvation shall be forever, and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Hearken to me, you that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear you not the reproach of men, neither be afraid of their revilings. For the mouth moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation from generation to generation." So he's talking to the people right here at the end time, just before all these horrible things begin to happen, and saying, look to him, don't fear. This isn't the millennium. In the millennium, all this damage will have already been done, and his righteousness will be here, and there won't be anyone to fear at that point. Satan will be chained, and all the armies of the earth will have been vanquished. So this is speaking ahead of that to us, and he's going to give us Edenic conditions. Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. We're to look back to these people for an example. So, what I plan to do then is kind of go through this roster. Uh, Paul didn't say a whole lot about them in Hebrews 11, but if he brings it up, and uses all of these mainly as an example of faith only. But that wasn't the only quality these people had. They had other uh, strong characteristics about them that made them followers of God and caused them to be listed among the faithful that will be in the first resurrection. So when he says go back to Abraham and to Sarah, that's a starting point, certainly. But Paul went further than that and added more names to that. He included Abraham and Sarah and wrote probably more about them than anyone. 
But there's a lot here I think we can learn by looking to our forefathers. So let's start with Abel. How much do we know about Abel? He's one of the faithful who's going to be in the first resurrection. First, uh, one of the first children on earth. I don't know for sure whether Cain and Abel were twins or not, but there's some thought that they may have been. Uh, but he was either uh, one of the first two born, one way or the other, Cain and Abel. Well, let's see what God says about him. There aren't many references to Abel in Scripture, but let's look at what there is, since Paul included him as being one of the faithful who will be in the first resurrection. It's worth looking at least at what we do have. Genesis 4 is the place to start, because that's the first place he's mentioned. So we'll do what will maybe just kind of a a series of character essays or short biographies of some of these people and see what we might learn from them about what created success in them. We're not to cast away our confidence. We're to build confidence that we will be in the kingdom of God. And Paul morphed through that process. Uh, I think he explained that in his Gospels where he went from saying, you know, who am I to be an apostle because I killed people in the church. He actually murdered church members uh, when he was an enemy of the church. And then when God struck him down on the road to Damascus, uh, he kind of woke up and realized, I'm, I'm doing the wrong thing. And he began to repent and change. But I think, based on what he said there, that Paul had a real struggle to accept the fact that God was having mercy on him, understanding what he had done. And he says, I shouldn't even be called an apostle, the least of the apostles, because I killed Christians. We, we don't see that happening right now today. We will soon, because there's a great deal of martyrdom about to start. But right now, we haven't seen people in the church being killed by the Jews or by somebody. Uh, there's now coming an attack by the whole Islamic world on anything that's named Christian, whether it's Christian or not. But real church members is what Paul killed. And he must have struggled with his conscience, his psyche, his, his brain, his emotions, in having done that. And then God called him and he realized the enormity of what he had been doing, that he'd been totally wrong and had to change it. So he probably went through a confidence crisis there for a while. But toward the end of his life, he realized, I've struggled, I've worked at it, I've run the race, as he put it, and I know I'm going to receive my reward. So his confidence grew through time, as God used him and continued to use him in spite of his past. And we have to do the same thing. We have to move toward more confidence and more faith, more trust in God, that he has the capacity to save us from ourselves and the devil. We need to gain that. And it comes through obedience and serving God. 
Anyway, going back here to Genesis 4, Adam knew his Eve, his wife. Uh, they were introduced. No, that's King James language. That they were prudes and they didn't want to say what he did. But whatever he did caused her to conceive, and she bore Cain and said, I've gotten a man, and maybe the it should read, a man the eternal, because she apparently worshipped Cain. And she again bare his brother Abel. Now, doesn't, one reason it makes you wonder if they were twins is it doesn't say he knew her again. He knew her and she bare Cain, and then she bare Abel. So the conceptions may have occurred at one time. Abel was just a second born. That is certainly a possibility considering this. Uh, chapter 4, verse 25. Uh, here it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. So he had relations with her in verse 1, and in verse 25, and a pregnancy was the result in both cases, but he doesn't mention knowing her uh, again before Abel was born. So a case could be made they may have been twins. Anyway, Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So they had different occupations, different professions in life. One was a rancher and one was a farmer. And in process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering to the Eternal. And Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Eternal had respect to Abel and to his offering. Now here we have to understand and conclude that they understood an awful lot of the Old Covenant. And we'll see that proved a little later on. But I want to introduce the thought here. Uh, Adam and Eve understood obedience to God. He walked with them, talked with them in the garden. I'm sure he taught them a lot of things. And then they ignored that when Satan came around and tempted their, human, their nature. But they knew what was a proper offering to bring before God and what was not. If they had not had some instruction, how would they know to bring an offering to God? How would they know what type of offering to bring to God? We're going to see here a, a total difference in the character of these two men. Their approach to life, if you will, by reactions, if by nothing else. So one brought of the first thing of his flock, and God had respect and appreciated that. The other one brought carrots and celery, and God didn't appreciate that. See, even way back then, and of course before the foundations of the earth were even done, it had been decided that Christ would have to come to the earth because of sin and offer himself for mankind so that we might be saved from our sins and not suffer the death penalty as a result of them. So it was established with Adam and Eve and with Cain and Abel that a blood sacrifice was needed. Therefore, they were able to bring an offering, but Cain 
thought, I'm a farmer, and I'm better than Abel, my brother. There was pride, envy, jealousy, ego, involved very heavily with Cain. Now why, if he understood, could he not trade carrots and celery for a firstling and offer that to God? But no, he says, I'm a farmer and my stuff's just as good as his stuff. And I'll offer it. God had not respect and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. He went into a funk right there. No more smiles, no more happy, a frown, a grimace, a furrowed forehead. Cain was upset. Now God, at that time, was still visiting with them directly. So they had learned a lot from God in the time that they had lived on the earth. Do you think that God would not have explained to them what happened to Adam and Eve? Do you think Adam and Eve had not explained to their sons what had occurred to them? We had this beautiful garden, and everything was great. And then the devil came and tempted us, and boy, did we mess up. And they didn't have a very good marriage after that. Because right off the bat, they blamed each other. The woman, she made me do it. (laughs) You know, well, the devil made me do it. Those are excuses people still use. So... They had suffered a great deal. And I'm sure that they cast blame back and forth because their life was not really good after that. They were cast out of that beautiful garden and into the thorns and the thickets and had to work by the sweat of the brow and pain in childbirth and all kinds of difficulties. Life became hard. And I'm sure they resented that and they blamed each other And probably things weren't so good. They certainly weren't like they had been. And the Eternal said to Cain, so he spoke to him. Uh, So that may have been somewhat customary that God had had a, a, a more direct influence in their lives. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? Where'd this attitude come from? What's, what's wrong with you? Now that implies to me that Cain had a pretty good knowledge of God and the ways of God and what God expected because he offered vegetables and God wasn't happy and God came to him and said, why are you angry? That implies you knew better. You should have done better. You didn't do what you knew to do Therefore, you have no reason to be upset when I'm not happy with what you did. Did you ever talk to your kids like that? I told you what to do. You didn't do it. Now I'm standing here with a paddle in my hand, and you're all upset. What you're about to get, you deserve because you didn't do what you were told. So there's an awful lot in here that isn't written all out because it would take a lot of space. 
But the, the, God's reaction and his reaction shows that there was a knowledge and a responsibility that had not been fulfilled. God will not hold you accountable in that sense if you don't know. But if you know, he will hold you accountable. Even there's a place that it says that almost in those words that the uh, the Gentiles don't know. And so they're concluded in sin and God isn't judging them because they don't know. But he says, you do know and you're held accountable. I can't think exactly how that's put or even at the moment right where it is, but that's essentially what it says. The Eternal said, Why are you angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, shall you not be accepted? Well, he must have known how to do well, or this conversation would not have occurred. If you'd have done what I told you, you'd be accepted. And if you do not well, sin lies at the door. What was sin? What did Cain know about sin? What is sin? Sin is a transgression of the law. Oh, you mean the law was still was there? Clear back then, before the law was given on Mount Sinai, the law was there? You bet it was. We're going to see what Cain did that lay at the door was murder. And he was punished for murder. Well, now, if he did not understand that murder was wrong, that it was a sin... God could not have punished him for it, because it would have been okay. Nothing wrong with murder. The Ten Commandments haven't been given yet. God's laws and his commandments have been forever. Forever. I don't know whether we grasp that or not. What was the first rebellion against God's way of life? Satan and those angels who followed him and became demons. Did they understand the law of God? Love God above everything else? Love your neighbors yourself? Sure they did. They knew rebellion was wrong, and pride and envy and vanity were wrong, but that's the way they went. And that caused a great turbulence in the universe. A war between God and Satan and the de- third of the demons, angels, demons, who rebelled against him. So God's way of life is a way of peace and loving and giving and serving and living together in peace. And Satan disturbed the peace. He sinned. He put another God ahead of God. That is himself. And that is generally our biggest idolatry is self-worship in one form or another. We put ourselves ahead of God's way, ourselves ahead of God's desires. I want to do this. Well, God says do this. No, I want to go do that. That's what gets us in trouble, is idolatry, which is covetousness. So he knew. Sin lies at the door. God didn't have to explain to him what sin was. He already knew. And he already knew what kind of offering he should bring. He just was going to do it his way. Well, that's a satanic attitude, isn't it? I'll do it my way. 
That hasn't changed. Frank Sinatra made millions on a song called My Way. Uh, and to you shall be his desire, and you shall rule over him. Or he's going to have to deal with sin, and it would rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Now, after he had a confrontation with God, he says, I'm going to go take this out up with, with Abel. We're, we're going to talk about this. It came to pass that he had talked, and when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. Abel had done what was correct. He'd followed God's word, and had brought a proper offering. Cain brought a wrong offering, knew what he was doing, got in trouble with God, and then, out of pride, ego, selfishness, he said, well, he's pleasing God, and he became jealous. I didn't please God, and he did. I'll fix that. So he killed him, just like that. See what pride, vanity, and ego does? The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, how would I know? Am I my brother's keeper? I don't follow everything he does and everywhere he goes, so now he's lying. There's another sin to cover up what he'd done. As if. You know, isn't that weird? He's just talked to God. He's in a nasty attitude. God's told him, your attitude stinks. And then he goes out and kills his brother and thinks he can hide it from God. <laughs> Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. I guess we think that if we do things in the dark, uh, God can't see it and man can't see it, so we'll get away with it. He thought he could hide that from God, that he killed his brother. Well, in a fit of anger and vanity and ego, he just did what he did and figured he'd deal with the consequences. You know, you, you, you put consequences off till later, don't you, sometimes? But then sooner or later, they show up. The chickens come home to roost, do they not? Sooner or later. And he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. I saw you do it. His blood drained out on the ground. Uh, you didn't hide this from me. And now are you cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. So he says, you shed your brother's blood into the ground. Now the ground is going to be a curse to you. He was a farmer. His life depended on the ground. His profession, his very living, came from the ground. When you till the ground, it shall not henceforth yield to you her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shall you be in the earth. A fugitive and a vagabond is someone who travels from place to place, running from justice, running from the law. No security, no peace of mind, always worrying. God put a mark on him, told him he was going to die, and... Or, or no, set a mark on him and told people not to kill him. But he was still afraid that somebody would kill him. 
So he lived the rest of his life as a fugitive, a vagabond, travels about, afraid. Afraid of being killed. He had killed, and he knew that others would want to avenge that and kill him. His was not a pleasant life. And if he did stop somewhere long enough to try to farm, it didn't happen. Wouldn't produce. That means he was probably a poor man the rest of his life. Now, Abel did not live long. The, story, the subject here is not really Cain. The subject is Abel. But there's a contrast. Because Abel responded to God. He gave the proper offering. He had a right attitude. And Abel did not live long on this earth. Not near as long as Cain did. Abel's going to be in the first resurrection. Cain is not. Now, I didn't say he's going to the lake of fire, because I don't know that. But it apparently, from this, it doesn't appear that he had a converted attitude, a converted mind, but he had a rebellious, vain, prideful character and approach to life. And he was going to do things his way, just like nearly everybody you know on earth. And that cost him dearly. But Abel responded to God. And he's listed among the righteous. He obeyed God and did what he said and died young. What's the old expression? Why did the good die young? Well, he did. But he's going to be in the first resurrection as part of the bride of Christ because his attitude was humility and meekness and obedience to God. So we can learn something here in the contrast of the two personalities and the character that they displayed. One was short but good, the other was long but miserable. And greatness through eternity as a bride of Christ is a reward of one. My sister and I talked about this just before she died recently. Uh, because she was only 62, and in today's terms, that seems pretty young to die. But she had cancer, and it was eating her up. And uh, I said, you know, it really doesn't matter how long you live on this earth, whether it's 30 years, 40, 80, 90. What difference does it make? Because it ends. And when it's done, it's done. And there's no more thought. The next moment of cognition will be a spirit being in the kingdom of God at the resurrection. And the scripture even says that that is going to be so wonderful that we will not even remember nor think about this life. You just move forward. Why would you want to go back and recount all this garbage that we go through? Now, we tend to today, don't we? We go back in our lives, and we think about things that happened in the past. And it seems like the older we get, and the closer to the end of this life, the more we think about the past, when we were young. The mind seems to go back there. And even people who begin to lose uh, toward senility or begin to lose their faculties... 
the short-term memory goes, and they can't remember what they had for breakfast, but they remember what Aunt Edna did 40, 50 years ago. Uh, so we tend to go back and recount our life. Now God says when you're a spirit being, you're not going to do that. It won't matter what happened here. Nobody will bring it up again. Even God himself says, I'm not going to bring up your past. We're moving forward. That's why Paul said, press on toward the mark, forgetting those things which are behind, move to the future. Think about now and tomorrow, not yesterday. We worry about past sins. Our conscience bothers us sometimes. We're afraid that we will not be forgiven. That's not faith. That's fear that Christ's blood isn't big enough for you. Is it? Does it matter what you've been? Does it matter what you've done? It's not what Ezekiel says. He says it's how you end up that counts. Not what you, where you've been and what you've done. We'll see some sinners here in Hebrews 11 before we're done with these character sketches that are going to be in the kingdom of God. Already, The judgment is already made on that. So Abel must have had a mind to respond to God and do what God said. And even with just a brief touching point here, in their lives, we see a vast difference between the two boys. Let's go on to 1 Samuel 6, verse 18. I can very quickly uh, find all the scriptures where Abel is mentioned. 1 Samuel 16, or 6 and verse 18. Oh, I'm in 17. That won't work. I said one and went to another. 1 Samuel 6. You're already there and you've already read it. Uh, but I'll get there eventually. So here they were dealing with the ark and the Philistines and the golden mice that we read about the other day. And it says, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both of fenced cities and of country villages, even unto the great stone of Abel, whereon they set down the ark of the eternal, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua the Bethshemite. That's all it says about it. But Abel's righteousness may be the reference here and that a great stone was named after Abel, probably a great big stone that was still there, and was named that as a memorial, as a thought, as a reference to a righteous man. Now, could this have been some other Abel that a rock was named after? I suppose so, it doesn't explain. But I suspect that since Abel is listed among the righteous, that a stone was named after him that would, uh, that would stay there and would be referred to. Now let's go to Matthew 23, and this is an interesting account. Matthew 23, 
and here I'll take it up, oh, in verse 27. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. So just looking good on the outside doesn't mean anything. Beauty's on the inside, and so is righteousness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but within you are full of hypocrisy and sin, or iniquity. God can see the difference, and Christ could recognize the difference in character, just as he did with Cain and Abel. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchers of the righteous. They, if there were sepulchers around where some of the righteous had been buried, whether it was David or Moses or Joseph or, or Mary or whoever that they uh, decided that they would uh, decorate the tombs of, and some of those were still around. So they make a big deal about the forefathers. The Pharisees made a big deal about their father Abraham and how they went back to Abraham. And Christ says, you're not like Abraham. <laughs> you're not like him at all. This is just window dressing. You're liars. You're hypocrites. Well, consider that in the light of Isaiah 51, where he tells us to look to Abraham from whence we were digged and understand why God blessed him and increased him. Now, they looked to Abraham and tried to borrow his righteousness and tack it on themselves and say they were righteous simply because they were descendants of Abraham. But God is telling us there, look at the blessings, look at the increase, and understand why. These guys weren't doing that at all. They were just borrowing the name and tacking Abraham across their foreheads and saying, I'm good, I'm wonderful. Because I'm a descendant of Abraham. Now, Ezekiel doesn't look at it that way as God inspired him. He says, each man will answer for his own life. Father not to the son, or the son to the father. Because they aren't always the same, are they? Apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but sometimes it rolls down the hill. Uh, so, a son can be wicked with a righteous father. Or, you can have a wicked father and a righteous son. Look at the list of the kings of Israel. Good and bad and good and bad. And it goes back and forth, back and forth, all the way through. So your heritage doesn't really mean anything. It's what you are. It's what he's trying to tell them here. So you decorate the tombs of the, pro of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, would not, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. We wouldn't have stoned the prophets if we'd have been living back then. Of course we wouldn't. We were righteous. We wouldn't have done that. Uh, wherefore, you be witnesses to yourselves that you are the children of them which kill the prophets. You say you wouldn't have done it, but you have said that you're kin to those people and they stoned the prophets. So, really... If you claim Abraham's righteousness, 
Don't you then have to claim those who stoned the prophets' unrighteousness? Can't have one without the other. If you're going to claim one and you're descendants of murderers, doesn't that make you murderers just as much as being kin to Abraham makes you righteous? No, it's what you are that counts. Fill you up then the measure of your fathers. You're going to live like they did? You say you're not. Then he calls them a serpents and a generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send to you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you shall kill and crucify. Some of them shall you scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. Who did he send? The apostles. What did they do? They persecuted them and they killed them. They said, we, if we had lived back then, we wouldn't have done that. And he says, you're about to. And then they did. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, the son of Barachias, whom you slew between the temple and the altar. He says, the sins that have occurred from the murder of Abel down to Zacharias, I'm going to pin on you because you have the exact same attitude and you're about to do the same thing that's been done in the past. So he says, that's the basket you're in. You think you're in Abraham's goody-goody basket, but you're not. You're in the rotten apple basket, just like the rest of the rotten apples in there. I found it interesting. I hadn't made this connection before, but the Zechariah, son of Barachias here, uh, is spelled differently, but it's Zechariah, the son of, of, of Barachiah. It's spelled differently uh, at the beginning of the book of Zechariah. But what did Zechariah do? Well, the very first thing when the book of Zechariah started, and it started right in the middle time period of when Haggai was writing. Haggai wrote over a period of four to six months, whatever it was. And right in the middle of that is when Zechariah started his message. And the first thing he says is, don't be like your fathers who stoned the prophets. Now Haggai and Zechariah are end time books. So we have a progression here from the people who's from Abel on down, who stoned the prophets and the righteous, through these people's forefathers who had killed Zechariah, and they were about to kill the apostles in their own generation. But since it's an end time prophecy, it's talking about those who will stone the prophets here at the end as well. Those are end time books, Haggai and Zechariah. But they killed Zechariah. What did he do? He told them, don't murder. Don't do as your fathers did. And then he went on to talk about how things would be here in the end time. And how the kingdom of God would be set up and Christ would rule. And they stoned him. Killed him. That was these guys' granddaddies that he's talking to here. 
Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Well, they didn't accept Christ. They didn't accept the apostles. And after he left, they started killing the apostles. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that you that kill the prophets and stone them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you wouldn't come. I clucked and clucked, and you wouldn't come. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth till you shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Eternal. He basically wrote the Pharisees off at that point. I'm not going to have anything more to do with you. You're not going to see me until you accept these that I'm sending. And they never did accept them. They killed them. And for the most part to this day, they still do not accept Christ or the words of his apostles, and they will not accept those whom God sends here at the end. Nobody on earth will except a few converted people, a remnant of those that God has called. They're the only ones who will accept the prophets that God sends here in the end time. The rest of the world will reject them. So history repeats itself over and over and over again. But I found it interesting that he used Abel as the beginning of the line of the righteous that were slain because they obeyed God. And really, that's what it amounted to when Cain slew Abel. It was because Abel obeyed God and pleased God, and he didn't. So I'm going to get rid of you. I can't stand having you around. And killed him. Well, maybe Abel, one day, as one of the 144,000, will see his brother come up in the second resurrection and say, here I am. <laughs> what are we going to do now? <laughs> I'm immortal, and you're standing there with cobwebs all over your nose. Uh, let's talk. Well, Cain had gone and talked to Abel, didn't he? And then killed him. Well, this talk's going to be kind of reversed. We might see some things about Joseph and his brothers here. Uh, very similar. Anyway, back to Hebrews 11. I'm out of time, aren't I, again? I thought I'd get further than this. Oh, well. Hebrews 11. By faith, verse 4, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, a legal one instead of illegal, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. Now, was it just that one act? The fact that he did what he did showed his approach to life, his character, his attitude toward God, that he would do it the way God wanted it done. And that was a witness or a testimony of his character and his approach to life. God testifying of his gifts. He testified to Cain. Your brother Abel gave me what I had told him to do, what I told you all to do, and you didn't do it. And by it, he being dead, yet speaks. What does he say to you? What does Abel say to me? He says, 
Do everything God says the way God says to do it. And you will be listed among the righteous as a bride of Christ. That's about all it says about Abel. That is all it says about Abel in the Bible. But there's enough there for a lesson for you and me. Just do what God says. Don't be vain, conceited, egocentric, selfish, as his brother was, but be as he was. And the contrast is there between Christ and Satan. We have a whole lot of information about Christ. We have quite a bit of information about Satan. But look at the contrast in the character. One who served his father with all his heart, and one who was vain and prideful and wouldn't do what God said, and the, is, the blackness of darkness is reserved forever for him, but Christ will live in glory with his wife and his children in peace, happiness, and security forevermore. Now that's the reason Paul put Abel in here is that we might understand that the man was righteous and served God in contrast to his brother who didn't. So Abel's blood cries from the ground for us to be righteous so that our blood is not shed forever, but we can have eternal life in the kingdom of God.